Hi, I'm Deb Crow, and I want to welcome you to Season 3 of Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with authentic and courageous leaders from all over the globe. You will learn from leaders you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolkit. Leadership belongs to all of us. It's not measured by stature or title. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. Okay, this is going to be a full disclosure moment for me. When I found my guest today, I literally perseverated. I love that word. <laughs> on how I was going to contact and what I was going to say. I had butterflies in my stomach. It was almost to the point where I wanted to really throw up. And then I decided to coach myself. And it was like, Steve gets up in the morning and brushes his teeth and has coffee just like you. Just send him an email because the worst thing he's going to say is no. Well, I emailed him and he said, I'd love to be on your show. And here we are. I am so thrilled to have Steve Cadigan today. I'm not going to read his bio because I want you to enjoy the richness and brilliance of his career, his new business. We're going to talk about his new book. If you have any any kind of thoughts about what the future of work is going to look like, is looking like, this is the show that's going to intrigue you. Steve is a talent strategist. He is a company culture expert. He is definitely heart-centered. I've listened to his podcast and I'm excited to read his book. So Steve, I am just so delighted to welcome you to the show. So happy to be here and I'm looking forward to this. Well, I have some leadership questions for you. I'm getting goosebumps here already and I'm going (laughs) to dig in because I want our listeners to really embrace your brilliance and what you're doing. My first question around leadership is you have said that passion can be overrated and that it can be a smoke screen preventing people, leaders from seeing what is real. Can you unpack that a little bit for us and and where does that stem from? I had an opportunity many years ago to work in the video game industry. And after my first day on the job, my boss picked me up from orientation and she said something to me, which I think really captures this well. She said, you know, in this industry, in this business, in our company, we have to be really careful because sometimes drama governs decision, not data. And that as humans, I think sometimes we are a little easily distracted by sizzle and pop. And I think sometimes we misconstrue passion in ways that that we halo that, wow, if that person is that excited or that animated, there must be some real substance behind it. And sometimes that's true and sometimes it's not true. And I've had a few mishires in my career where I got seduced by the sizzle and interpreted that as passionate. And it was just exuberance and excitement. But the depth of, you know, the quality wasn't as as much there as I wanted it to be. So that was, it was just a learning. And, and interestingly enough, my last regular job when I was the first chief HR officer at LinkedIn, that was a question the CEO asked me. He says, what are the most important attributes you look for when you're hiring someone? Okay. And I've been recruiting at that point, probably 25, 30 years in my life. And to me, that's one of my favorite 
favorite uh, professions in the world is trying to, you know, interview and assess people and, and map them to what opportunities are going to best suit them. And I think for leaders, uh, this is, I think, the, one of the most important muscles that we need to be really, really good at. So I listed off in this interview with the CEO, which is a really important interview for me to get right, what I thought. And he says, you didn't mention passion as one of the key things. And I said, well, it's important to me, but honestly, I've been fooled a few too many times. So I'm reluctant to lay that out as a necessary indicator for me. Well, I'll, I'll add a part B to this question because because I was going to get into the LinkedIn um, position and what you did there because it was quite a feat. I mean, you went from 400 to 4,000 employees in three and a half years. That's like recruiting on on turbo mode. And from two to 16 countries. Mm-hmm. So I, I think about all the logistics just in that alone. And and taking what you just said about the fundamental qualities that you look for. But what I want you to talk about is all the things that were hard that leaders don't always talk about. Mm-hmm. You know, the things that you would have as a sounding board to a coach or to the CEO. How did how did you undertake that massive recruiting for LinkedIn? Honestly, in retrospect, I don't know how we did that. It was incredibly messy. It was really hard. Imagine the pressure, Deb, because we are a recruiting-centered product company. And if we don't deliver recruiting in our own organization really well, well, that's not going to go well for us in the market space. So it was like a I was leading an effort that where failure was not an option. So some of the problems that we had and some of the real frustrations that are still fresh uh, in my rear view window, we never ever forecast the magnitude of the growth that we were going to go after, which meant every year we probably, and this is, I'm probably under calling what the, the magnitude here, but we probably hired two to 300% more than we thought we would at the beginning of the year. No one at manning the controls of big decisions in our company wanted a big company. None of us did. We were all big company refugees. So we're like, let's just get the bare minimum of what we need. Let's keep scrappy. We were not growing exponentially like our neighbors, Facebook and Google and Apple were. We were just slow and steady. Um, we didn't have the sexy sex appeal of a product that a Twitter had or, a, you know, the Facebook had at the time. So we didn't think that we were going to be as successful as we ultimately were. And then opportunities would present themselves midway through the year. And so when you're hiring at that pace and you're not planning to hire at that pace, you're always behind. You're always frustrated. Every hiring manager is overburdened and every recruiter is overburdened. And and it's just, it's a very, very tense, stressful, unhealthy environment. And unfortunately, we never, and I never, uh, and I put this on me as well as the the other my my leaders. We never got in front of that to the point where we felt really satisfied with that effort. It was a grind the whole way. Um, so that was sort of you know issue number one that I think you know in re- in retrospect it, on the outside, oh, it's so flashy and so great. The second part that's really really hard is when you go. To say you went from four to one four thousand is impressive in the time frame that we did in 
a marketplace where the war for technical talent was never as great. And it's very, you know, competitive today, but it was really hot back then to the point where regularly we would see if we made an offer to a candidate at a top tier company that they would receive a half a million dollar retention bonus, a million dollar retention bonus for them not to go. So that's, those are the odds that we were fighting against. And for us to enter new countries, the complexity is just logarithmic compared to just in one headquarters, you're just adding people. No, you're going in a new country. They don't know who you are. You don't know the laws. You don't know the rules. You don't know the privacy regulations. And one of the things that was a big a hurdle for us and was frustrating for me personally was that I was the only executive who lived and worked in two other countries. I've been in Singapore for two years and Canada for four. And nobody on my peers had ever worked and lived in another country to know what it's like to be an expat, to know what it's like to to be sort of a uh, not a welcome from not a welcome country to know all the taxes and all the the burdens that you have to go through to open a new bank account and all these other things and have your kids go to different schools I'd experienced that so moving people around and recognizing you know what it's like to be in a distant location wasn't something that there was a great appreciation for and so I wound I, I felt like I was yelling in the woods and no one was listening to me for a while until we had problems come up. Um, so that was, that was a, another piece of that. I think the other one was, uh, and this was a, a fun one, which forced us to be creative is nobody on our leadership team had ever grown a company from nothing to something. And we didn't have a map. <laughs> we were going into new world with maps that we used in old world. And we're all big company refugees, which meant we'd, been really good individually at going into big companies and tuning and, and, and tweaking and adjusting, but we never built something from nothing. And at first we were, that was really hard for us. And I think probably a couple of years in, and I was the first person that the CEO that uh, he was a second or third CEO of the company, Jeff Weiner. I was the first person that he'd hired and then he started to round out his team. And once we all kind of got settled and we recognized that, hey, this is actually pretty awesome that we don't have a map. Let's do it this way. Let's build it in our own image. Um, and it took us a long time, honestly, Deb, longer than you would think to sort of have the courage to say, we're deserving of this moment. We're worthy of this moment. We were always, well, you know, maybe we're not, you know, going to be successful and that confidence took a while to take root. Um, and at the time, I wasn't even appreciating the moment, Deb. Like, you're in it. You're, you know, I, my favorite quote to my boss when I'd go into his office for my one-on-one was, hey, Jeff, do you hear that noise? And he said, what are you talking about? I said, those are all the balls I'm dropping because I cannot do everything <laughs> that we need done. He goes, well, you're just going to have to prioritize. I said, I'm doing my best. But it's, I'm a perfectionist. When you're at that level, everyone around you is a perfectionist and it's not comforting. It's unsatisfying to know, oh, you're not able to do all that. I'm sure you hear your clients tell you that all the time. But when that's happening at scale uh, and we're building a new industry that no one's ever built before, it was incredibly energizing and incredibly terrifying, you know, at the same time. I was going to say to you at the end of your answer was, the amount of courage it must have taken you. So I'm I'm smiling ear to ear in delight because it's not all about intelligence. It's allowing your confidence to become parallel to being courageous. 
And it, it reminds me, I had Chip Conley on the show. I think we opened season two with him. Mm. And he said, I remember when the brainchilds called me from Airbnb and he said, I'm old enough to be their dad. And they said, yeah, we have the idea, but we don't know how to build the company. And Chip said, what I didn't realize was they needed my wisdom and my experience. And what I gained from them was was getting back the imagination that I lost in the process of building my mm. boutique hotels for 25 years. Beautiful. Like it was just, it was just such a synergetic alignment between the millennial generation and the baby boomers. And he just said, it, it, and then I joked with him and I said, how many Airbnbs have you stayed at? And he's like, 150. Because <laughs> <laughs> when, when they first asked him to come, he said, the most ridiculous idea I've ever heard of. Like who would want to stay in someone else's home? So he he's he's a fun guy and he says, I am now eating humble pie. Yeah. And I just, I love the way you unpacked that because leaders from the executive level all the way up to the CEO, they have this, I call it this big obligation cloak that they have on and they're trying to stay self-directed but they get succumbed into perfection because everybody sees them in that light because of the stature that they've attached to their worth and worthiness. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. pressure, but you did it. It's like when you look back and go, I don't really know how I did that, but I did it. And it's a phenomenal thing. But I also love that you had the experience of moving your family to another country and talking about all the personal things that you had to go through. And it's hard to move across country, let alone to another country on the other side of the world and all the things that come with that. And nobody ever talks about that. And I think that, again, brings that heart centeredness to show, yeah, this was a lot of work. It wasn't the funnest thing to do. Right down to what you said, opening up a bank account. So that knowledge that you were able to bring to LinkedIn, it's like you could sit in the observer's chair when you were trying to recruit people knowing Hey, I know how how this is going to go for you. I've gone through this. That relatability, I think, is what people want. And one of the things that I I love the most about you when I've watched you speak and I've read reviews about your book, which we're going to talk about, mm-hmm. is you bring such a common sense approach. And I and I often hear that from comments back from the show that I lead a very common sense conversation. And but common sense isn't common practice. So that's something I hope you and I are going to keep rippling out in the world. So let's talk about your book. Before I do, I have to ask you my second question because it has permanent residency on the show and it's super fun and laughter is allowed. What imperfections does Steve bring to his heart-centered leadership? Oh, how much time do we have? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, uh, gosh. I would say... um, Real, uh, real struggle saying no. Um, real struggle, you know, when things don't go right. Uh, I really, it's really hard for me. I've been told this by many of the folks that I work for. You know, we're dealing in the people business. It is gray. This is not a black and white universe. It is all gray. I remember going golfing on a charity event one time with a CFO whose entire half his workforce had gone on strike. And I go, how's it going over there? He goes, I love my job, except for the people. <laughs> and I didn't know him well enough to know he was being very sarcastic. And he's a, you know, he really did care, but it was really, 
just an open admission of how challenging that can be. Um, and I would say though those are big ones for me in the service business, like human resources, which has been my career path, there is no end to the service that you could offer. It has to, you have to draw the line yourself. And that is a big, big uh, challenge that I've had uh, my whole career is, is saying no. I, it's an issue with my family. It's an issue with my mom. <laughs> you know, I'll do that. I'll take care of it. Well, you said you, oh, yeah, I didn't get to, sorry. You know, and so that's a, it's a, it creates a hole for you. It was easier when we didn't have internet and email. Um, and now you have more venues to, to, to get things, but I would probably say that's, you know, that's where it starts. It's, it's a common one. And, and like you said, when you get to a certain level, you, you kind of adapt that perfectionist and sometimes it gets taken to an unhealthy level. But I think we all have cycles and seasons where we all experience that. And I also love that you said we are in the people business. I don't think it's sector dependent. And I think right. being home for a couple of years allowed us to virtually do business everywhere and, and touch everyone virtually. And the sector doesn't matter because at the end of the day, it is great. We're all in the people business, regardless of our, our stature, our tighter, our roles and responsibilities, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's the part of the pandemic that I feel has really um, presented us with a great, great learning, which is this is about life. It's not about work. That's what we're trying to solve for is great lives. Um, and I see so many organizations that are trying to, you know, get back to the office and, and the, the, uh, management says, well, you, you think you're more productive there, but we think you're more productive here. And I'm you know, trying to mediate some of these conversations and say, uh, to the executives, I think what they're saying is their lives are more productive when they have more freedom, autonomy, and independence and don't have to be somewhere. Not that their work is more. It's a bigger comment that we may be missing you know, in this conversation, but I, I agree with you that this has been a big, big focus for me, uh, particularly now in this seduction world of robots and AI and, you know, technology and is being the first knee jerk reaction that people want to talk about when things get hard. Well, the solution must be a new system, a new tool, a new robot um, and neglecting the reality that, well, that's going to be utilized, applied and driven by a human being. So how about let's start with what's not working for for us as a business and then get 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 into maybe technology as an answer but it's going to be in through the hands of you know an individual right i i always love joking when we talk about ai cuz it comes up a lot in these conversations and you know i remember interviewing a cto and he said i haven't found a robot with an outgoing personality yet deb we're always going to need people yeah true now i want to talk about your book um, I've watched, uh, some of your talks online and, and two things that really resonate with me is you say people don't want to be hired anymore. They want to be inspired and people aren't looking for, uh, an adventure. They, they, they want a career, but they want it to be an adventure. So number one, I love the name of your book. It's called Work Quake. Very, very creative and appropriate. What laid in your heart to create this book and really encompass to have what I want to call the visionary transformational leadership to 
to bring your head into the future, which I know is in your wheelhouse as a leader, but what really uh, kind of, where was the boundary that you drew the line in the sand and thought, okay, Steve, you got to write this book. I feel it was probably a groundswell of a rising tide of dissatisfaction that I was feeling and seeing in my conversations with employees and in my conversation with employers. I said, something is increasingly unsatisfying for both parties here. And if this is going to be a relationship that's going to reveal greater satisfaction, greater inspiration, dare I say joy, um, if we're investing all this time of our lives uh, in this um, venture to try to, you know, the, the irony is the whole point of working is so you don't have to work. Uh, which is, I find really interesting. Like we never talk about that. Like the goal of working is so you don't have to work. The goal of working isn't so you can work. Now, some people are just, you know, need that, that challenge. And, and um, I'm not one of those people. Like I definitely work to live um, and enjoy my, my freedom and my non-working time. I wasn't always like that, but I would say it was that overtime, Deb, that feeling like something's just not right here. And Probably it was in 2009, I had just joined uh, Electronic Arts in a, in a really big, interesting role that I was excited about where I was going to do lots of mergers and acquisitions. They'd relocated me to the back to the States from Canada. And then 2008, uh, so it was 2008, so second mortgage crisis hits and the company's capacity to buy companies basically disappeared. Like the the conservatism needed to be realized like, hey, we've got to hold on to the cash. We don't know what this second mortgage crisis is going to deliver. We cannot buy companies. So the job I'd been hired to do essentially evaporated. And uh, I still had a job and I, I wasn't in, insecure in that regard, but I was really, really bored. And so I started to look for another opportunity. And that's when the the LinkedIn opportunity came across my my radar. And so interviewed, accepted the job. That's a whole nother story. Just so excited about that. And I couldn't sleep for two weeks after I interviewed with, uh, with them because it was such a perfect match for me. And I think for them too. So I gave my notice. And as soon as I gave my notice and I'd barely been in electronic arts for a year, I was made to feel awful, like a disloyal sort of, uh, you know, behavior that the company was not very happy with. And they'd paid a lot of money to relocate me. I had to repay all the money the, that they'd paid to relocate me because I'd quote broken my contract. But I was like, wait, the market changed and I've got the opportunity of a lifetime. And you're, you're saying goodbye, giving me enormous amounts of guilt. And the boss that had hired me was taking a lot of heat that she'd lost one of her top hires. And I thought, that's just something's just wrong. And then I started really thinking about it and saying the whole notion of our relationship was built on a dishonest assumption. You commit to stay here a long time and we'll commit to employ here a long time. We both know we probably won't adhere. One of us was probably going to break that promise, but let's start with a false shared assumption that you're going to commit to stay here a long time and we're going to employ you a long time. And it's just, it's broken. And so I, I, that was the one that said, okay, this is it. You know, I've got to really start helping people feel that 
more honest conversations are going to be beneficial. Stop knocking this. You have to be at a company a long time for you to have a vital career or a vital company. Maybe that's not necessary. And that really, so that triggered me to sort of go down this path of, I want to articulate a more satisfying future of work. Um, and then, so that was probably the biggest blow to sort of send me on this mission. I wasn't intending on writing a book. I didn't, I didn't have any uh, illusions at the time. And then probably 10 years later, uh, when I'd stopped my uh, LinkedIn adventure after, you know, three and a half years, it felt like 20. I was listening, 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 listening. And I'm like, wow, all the stuff that I've been feeling before is even worse now. And I'm seeing more people stay shorter periods of time, but I'm seeing more companies do really well when they have people stay a short period of time. Let me try to present a narrative out there that's more satisfying for people. So that was sort of the the triggering event. It was a wasn't one big thing. I probably the EA experience was the one that started me, but it was over many conversations, probably the last five years that really said, yeah, you got to do this. And and just the, you know, internal struggle that you probably had cognitively and emotionally with your HR background to be experiencing what you may have knew through colleagues or other companies and then you were in the hot seat. You were the recipient going, this doesn't feel very good. Right. Absolutely. You know, it's 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 very humble to sit in the observer's chair sometimes. And it's nice to hear it from someone at your level with that background. And it's so easy for behavior to be pointed to someone else. Like you talked about, you know, the woman who who hired you and you were one of the top people on her team. We can't control other people's behaviors. And like you said, you opened the bandwidth, the market had changed, you had the opportunity of a lifetime. Why would you not? And 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 just to have you have that, like you said, that admission of guilt and remorse and almost shame mm-hmm. when you were thinking, it's okay to put myself to the first of the line. Yeah, I had to, it's interesting, when I gave my notice to my boss, who I adore to this day, she started crying. And what what I heard through her tears were she had lost seven or eight of her direct reports over the course of the year. And I was the last one. And I tried to help her reframe it. I said, listen, Gabrielle, you lost someone to be the head of HR for Zynga, which is an incredible game company. Someone to be the head of HR for CBS Interactive. Someone to be head of HR for Living Social. Someone to be head of HR for Dolby Labs. You should see that as a victory, as that that this company, that your leadership has put people in a position to have life-changing moments for them and their families. Like that's a... That's celebratory and you're crying right now. And I know in her heart, I think she knew what I was talking about, but she was going to have to face her peers and they're all about retaining people and retention bonuses. And she was not living it on her team and she's you know, responsible for trying to have all these other leaders keep their people longer. And so, and there's no right or wrong here, right? There's sort of a, it's a, it's a continuum, but I, I had to sort of console her which was an unexpected place for, for me to be in. But you're a heart-centered leader, so you can do that. And and what a beautiful reframe from her leadership, all those direct reports going to phenomenal companies. Right. And what a nice what a nice way to reciprocate and, and give her a different way of looking and thinking about it. You probably made her cry harder. 
Okay, my last question I'm super excited about because when you talk about style, you allude to say, be your own style, lead your own way, learn from others, but learn that they got where they are from being authentic and finding their own arc and voice. People do crave this. And I think this aligns with your stop hiring, start inspiring. So what is Steve's style and is it still evolving? Oh, it's definitely still evolving. I mean, I, uh, if I were to say what my style is, I'm probably not the best person to answer that. Probably anyone who's worked with me or for me is, is a better source. But what I've been told is real, honest, transparent, first person to say I was wrong. In fact, I'll probably say I'm wrong even if I don't think I'm wrong <laughs> quickly to sort of say, let's just disarm the the blame game and let's focus on making this right. And so, and that I hope leads other people to feel safe to say, okay, it's broken. You know, who who broke it doesn't, doesn't matter. Uh, if we find that the same person's breaking it like five times, okay, then we've got an issue of who, but you know, let's let's try to focus on solving and issues rather than who and finding blame. And in America, we are so good at wanting to find someone to blame something for. Like we are really good at that. And so I try to dis- disarm that. I also uh, will use, um, I will go out of my way to bring humor and to depressurize situations. Uh, so for example, one of my fun achievements in the small uh, universe of my life when LinkedIn rolled out a skills product where you can say, endorse people for their skills. Like I know Deb and she's a great coach. She's a great facilitator. She's a great leader. I thought the product was a little bit silly. So I said, I said, I have a skill of humor and I would like other people to endorse me for humor. To this day, I have more endorsements for humor than anyone on the LinkedIn platform. Uh, and and you could create any skill that you wanted to. There wasn't like a drop down list of, of what the particular skills were, but that has served me incredibly well uh, over the course of my career. That in pressure pack moments, I can sort of bring it down. And that comes from my father, who's a minister, who used the unexpected, occasional curse coming from a minister's mouth to completely like disarm people. Like whoa. I'm not in a normal situation. Um, And so I will say things, you know, a lot of times in my profession, when an employee brings an issue forward, they're expecting the the human resource executive to completely get behind the company and defend. And many times I go, yeah, you're right. That is wrong. And they're like, what? I go, yeah, it's broken. You know, And, and so I have, I guess my style is, I have broken more policy in my career than I've made because not every policy is made for every situation. And life is in the transitions. It's in the differences. And I try to be, and I think it comes from growing up in South Africa at a very early age and recognizing difference of perspective and skin color and backgrounds. And that's sort of embedded in me and, and having a high empathetic index. So uh, but that's what I try to do. I try to disarm people pretty quickly that you're not in the normal situation. So let's have a real conversation, right? Yeah, I love that. And I, my Irish Nana used to say, you can disarm anything with a little humor and a little candor. Yep. I, I'm going on LinkedIn now and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to endorse your humor just, <laughs> just because you said that. I, I want you, I want to keep you in the lead there. 
Thank and you. How, and how fun is that? And and what a snapshot it gives of peop, two people of, of who you are and what you are when they don't know you. Yeah. Your number one trait's humor. I bet you he's a fun guy. Yeah. And and fun can prevail in leadership. Leaders can be fun, right? There's so much seriousness around the proverbial white, you know, ladder that everybody's climbing. And like you said, you didn't always take time for life, but now you're valuing it. Many executives say that. And then there's many that that don't get there. Yeah. So it's it's nice to hear it from someone that you're now valuing, you know, I can slow down a little bit and I like going golfing and going on vacations with my family. And you get to a certain point where it's okay to have that boundary in place. Right. And and I think early in my career, I, I had no clue who I was, what was important to me. I was trying to become the mold of what I thought I others thought I should be. And at some point I'm like, this is silly. I just got to be me. Like, for example, I was working mostly with women and human resource teams early in my career, and I'd been coached, don't talk about sports. It's a guy thing, okay? That's not going to be interesting to the folks you're working with. It's going to sound like you're all machismo and all that. Don't do that. And so I kept that in, and I was like, okay, you know, I won't talk about sports. And finally, I just couldn't after a while, and I started talking about it, and then I found, you know, people's like, wow, we didn't know you like that, and you, other people... Uh, resonate with what you like. And now you've got another dimension that you can bring to. I was like, wow, I just, why had I been told to cloak that and be a robot, you know, be unfeeling and not talk about stuff that's important to me. Uh, And it might not resonate for some people. Okay. Some stuff they're talking about doesn't resonate for me. So it's okay. You know, it's okay. And, and I think when we're ourselves and we're real, I think it anchors back to the point that you said, have your own style, adapt to your style, lead in your own way. One of the things I love about the show is we're all imperfect. And when we can have a laugh at ourselves, I think that's the best expression of our imperfection. Like, I can't believe I did that. Or what was I thinking? We've all had those moments. But being real and true, people see that. Because whatever we come, whatever comes out of our mouth as verbal expression is really what's going on in our heart. And when our hearts align with our head, we're in the right space. And I love that you also said that you've broken more policies than you've created. <laughs> that That's a trailblazer. And sometimes that can be a lonely road. But we need people like that in the world. They don't want to follow the status quo or they question, well, what what do you mean? Or how come it's like this? Or, you know, I remember my Irish Nana telling us stories that, you know, the cliche that we hear on repeat as kids, well, we've always just done it that way. It's if it's not broke, don't fix it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If we all have that mentality, we wouldn't have anything new. Right. So it's very, very interesting. Okay. I'm going to switch to my fab four. These are just four fun questions. Tell us what's sitting on the top of that brilliant mind of yours. If I asked your family or your close friends to describe you in one word, what word would they give me? Um, I'd probably say sport. Sport. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the context that you're a good sport? In the context of everything I love about sports is what I love about leadership. Okay, sports. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hence, hence playbook. I'll be, I'll be excited to send you mine. Okay. Second question. And you cannot use your own book. Okay. 
a little context around it. So share with us a book that you've read at any juncture juncture in your life that was really impactful. What was the name of the book? Who is the author? And, and why did it impact you? There's a few. Um, the one I'll use is Malcolm Gladwell's Tipping Point. I think whatever you do in life, whatever you do, you're trying to change something. You're trying to move something from here to there, to grow this, to shrink that, to change this. And what I love about that book is it massively reframed me from looking from, uh, instead of looking at one thing, that change happens from hundreds of things and that this is a ecosystem play, not a one lever to pull play. And that has served me incredibly well in my career and also gave me tools of when you're changing something in an organization, for example, there are people who can really help you. And they're the people who mostly disagree with you that other people listen to. And and Gladwell calls them mavens, like find the people who are most vocally in disagreement with what you want to change, who have the most ears and the respect in the organization and don't change the whole organization, change them first, get them on your side uh, and listen why they disagree or why they want. And if you can win them, then you will have a massive advantage. And so that served me so, so well. So that's a, and it's probably, I don't know, 10 years dated or so, but mm-hmm. it was a real game changer for me. That That is a good book. And it's it's been brought up on the show before. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's bringing us back to those elementary school days where we were learning about one to many. Mm-hmm. And there's, like you said, it's not a lever. It's just not a a one system approach or or answer to to get to the resolution or solution that you're trying to get to. Great book. I agree. Okay, third question. Here's some context. I'm granting you a wish and you get to have dinner with a leader of your choice. This leader may be living. Maybe this leader has passed away. Who are you having dinner with and what is the dinner conversation? Um, it's top of mind for me. Um, I don't know if it's going to be the bullseye leader that some business folks would be thinking about, but for me, this person shaped an industry, um, and a generation that's Bill Russell. Uh, Bill Russell was, uh, one of the first black superstar basketball players. Uh, he graduated from university of San Francisco where I got my master's go Dons. Uh, he, um, endured enormous amounts of uh, racism. He was with Dr. Martin Luther King and in a moment of, you know, character defining moment when Dr. King gave the, I have the dream speech, he invited Bill Russell with him because Bill had enormous followership given his athletic prowess and his experience. And Bill said, and he just recently met Dr. King and Dr. King said, you stand behind me. And he says, no, I want to stand in front because I haven't earned the right to stand behind you yet. I haven't you know, really, really delivered the the change that that you're speaking to. So it would be all around you know, what was it like growing up in that era and what was America and the world like at that time and um how hard and how courageous it must have been to face what he faced. Yeah. And it's 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 so humbling just to hear, you know, I remember my grandma reading a poem to me about you know, you don't walk in front of me, you don't walk behind me, you walk beside. And just to hear that analogy from from that history, from that era, from that time, and the level of respect that they had and just the camaraderie that they had, that that would definitely be an interesting dinner for sure. 
Um, so before I close out the show with my last question, I'm just going to say you are more delightful than I anticipated you to be. I knew you were going to be great, but you've, you, this has been such a fun conversation. I just would like to come through the, the computer here and, and continue on. Um, I wish you much success. We're going to put your bio and links to your book below in the podcast episode description. And I just want to say, like, you're someone that I look up to. And if I learned anything about calling you and getting you on the show is I always think, again, Irish Nana wisdom, I think it's good for us to have nervousness and excitement and butterflies to to meet other people. But at the end of the day, we're just people. And all you have to do is is reach out and send a nice email and say, hey, this is who I am and this is what I would love to talk to you about. And and there's always a surprise on the other side when you receive a yes. So thank you for saying yes to being on the show. I'm excited to read your book and I'm definitely going to go give you uh, a LinkedIn review for your humor, your candor, you. your realness, <laughs> and you are a heart-centered leader, Steve. Thank you so much. You really are. So I'm going to ask you to finish the show by finishing this sentence for me. Okay. Heart-centered leadership is? Is living the world from a 100% empathetic point of view, whereas always seeing the world through the, the lens of those around you and appreciating the difference in that. Thanks for joining me today on Imperfect the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed the show today and learned some new tools for your leadership from our amazing Heart-Centered guest. And if you like the show, we would welcome a rating and review on whatever platform you listen to. And we would love to have any comments or feedback at any time. And if you want some more Heart-Centered goodness, Head over to our daily blog, masteringtheheart.com.